This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Let's face it, trying to find parking in some Chicago neighborhoods can be a total nightmare. You want something that's close to your destination, easy to find, and if you're lucky, it's free. But experts say this daily universal problem might be unnecessary. New parking spots are being built every day. But the University of California estimates there are between 3.4 and 8 parking spots for every car in the U.S. So why are they so hard to find? And how does parking impact the way that our cities look today? Here to discuss is Henry Grabar, a staff writer at Slate and author of a new book, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Hi, Henry. Hi there. Daniel Knowles is here, a Midwest correspondent for The Economist and author of the book Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Welcome to Reset, Daniel. Thank you for having me. And Jane Wilberding is here, co-founder of the Parking Reform Network. That's a nonprofit that educates people about how parking policies affect everything from traffic to housing to climate change. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I was going to start by asking the two of you, did you have to find parking here at Navy Pier? But I see you both biked. I did indeed, despite the the very kind of kind instructions about where I could park. <laughs> we, that did your we send you the, uh, out. Yeah. the the, the <laughs> traditional reset PDF on how to park here? Yeah. You did. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know, as I mentioned, parking and finding a spot that can be tough, right? And Jane, it sounds like there's more than enough parking in the country. So tell me, where are all these spots? Yeah, and you know. We build a lot, a lot of parking, and a lot of the times, you know, it's been systemic, right? We've had uh, these things called minimum parking requirements in which every single land use has a required number of parking spaces for, uh, you know, based on what those needs are. But, you know, we don't value those spaces. We don't share those spaces among different users, Mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily tell people where they are. So a lot of times there is parking, but you might not be able to see it or it might be taken up um, by another, you know, user all day mm-hmm. or, um, you know, it's not shared. So even though you're at a restaurant and there's, you know, available parking from a bank that you, you can't access that because right. it's privately owned and not able to be used by you. Because those pesky signs are up that say, exactly. like, for our customers only. And right? who knows what could happen if you park there. <laughs> <laughs> who knows who's waiting around the corner to come and catch exactly. you. Uh, why do we struggle so much to find spots, Daniel? What's your take? Why aren't there spots when we need them? It's because they're not priced correctly. You know, and I say that as an economist writer, the basic problem is that we try to determine, you know, where parking is available with all these rules, whether, you know, this is allowed for this or that or the other. And almost since kind of the invention of uh, cars, we've never really priced parking, you know, even though land is valuable. And if you give something away for free um, or for much cheaper than it should be, then, then there will always be queues for it. And so when we kind of insist on free parking, what we also sort of insist on is basically parking scarcity, scarcity mm. everywhere. So the, the the more free spots that are out there, the, the fewer spots we'll find, is what you're saying? Basically, yeah. yeah. And, and if you're willing to pay for it, then generally you can find parking, you know, even in places like Manhattan. Um, the, the tricky thing is that people are always looking for the free spots. Yeah, because when you charge, fewer people will want to drive. Mm. Right. Uh, you have a thought, yeah. Jane. And, and we have the same approach to all parking. All parking is free, but there's so many different ways 
that we charge things in other ways. So, you know, we all want to go to the Beyonce conference or concert for free, but, uh, you know, we have different prices for different seats. We all don't want to wait in line when we go through TSA to get to the airport. But, you know, if you pay for TSA pre-check, you get, you don't have to wait as long. Right. So it doesn't really make sense that we have the same approach, which is free parking for everyone all the time when there's these different motivations and different kind of user groups. Yeah. Well, Henry, I want to bring you in here because you have talked about how drivers, we just tend to have high standards when it comes to, to parking spots, right? You know, we want them to, to Jane and Daniel's points, to, we want them to be extremely convenient. We want them to be immediately available. And then we want them to be free. But is that too much to ask for? Yes, I think it is too much to ask for. <laughs> Um, of course, there are places where you can find parking that's free and convenient and available, but those places tend to not be very lively and very vibrant, which gets to one of the fundamental issues with automobiles as a transportation medium, which is that they're not particularly well suited for getting a lot of people to one place at one time. And I think that is um, at the root of many situations in which people find there's a shortage of parking. Um, when you have 40,000 people who are going to Wrigley Field at once, mm-hmm. right, um, you're obviously going to find that even if the neighborhood um, might do fine with parking on a regular day, the parking becomes tight at, at that time and place, right, which is why um, it makes sense to serve busy destinations with, for example, mass transit. Um, if you, of course, expect parking to be uh, convenient, available, and free, um, you're going to be disappointed in a lot of these locations, and that's just due to some simple mm. um, geometry with respect to cars and how much space they take up. And another thing, which is how much parking costs to build. This is really important because I think when people hear about how much parking there is in the country, um, they can't really believe it, first of all. And right. When they have a shortage of parking in their neighborhood, I think their first reaction is often, well, we should just build a lot more parking, right? Like that new apartment building that's getting built down the street – they should have a three-story garage in that building. Um, unfortunately, parking, despite the fact that we don't want to pay for it, uh, is really, really expensive to build. Like the median parking spot in a garage in the United States costs $28,000. Wow. And that's the median, right? So in a big, bustling city like Chicago, it's probably a lot more than that. And it's a lot more than that if it goes underground. Mm-hmm. And that's something, that's a fundamental mismatch here, right? Mm-hmm. The, the cost to build parking and the price that anyone is willing to pay for it. And that sort of explains why parking does tend to be tight in these donations because nobody wants to pay for it. But at the same time, uh, there are very few entrepreneurs who would make a profit yeah. um, just building a garage on their own. Well, you're getting nods all around the room here. Jane, you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I would just build off of Henry's point that, you know, we also don't necessarily communicate what the trade off is. So when you build that parking garage, that's $30,000 that's not going towards housing. And that's also making that housing more expensive because now that developer and that, you know, housing complex has to build in the cost of that parking space into that renter or that owner's, um, you know, housing cost. Uh, and even if they don't have a car, they have to then cover that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, building a parking garage is almost, you know, it's almost like a 30-year commitment to climate change because, you know, we are really committing to, you know, more traffic, more, you know, more, more parking, yeah. more cars on the street, more, it, it, it builds on traffic as well. And, and so that we further understand, right, we've said, you know, there's, there's too much parking, there's a lot of parking available, but what existed 
in the place of all these parking structures before? Like, did we have to do away with specific buildings, like office space and, and housing in exchange for more parking? Is that what we're saying? Or is that, has it been sort of a little bit of everything, Daniel? I think it depends on where you look. But if you go to some American cities, you know, somewhere like uh, Columbus, Ohio, you know, perhaps Chicago, I think it's got off relatively lightly. But, you know, there are cities here where the downtowns are 30 to 40 percent kind of parking spaces and they were buildings there. You know, there were people who lived there kind of 60 or 70 years ago. And those kind of downtowns have been demolished you know, to, to build, to carve out space for parking and for the roads that get people to those parking spots. Yeah. So we've lost a lot. I mean, how, what's the percent of parking here? I, I think downtown it's something like four to five percent of surface parking. Okay. So it's not that bad. Chicago has really, you know, survived quite well, though. You know, if you go back 30 years and look at somewhere like River North, there was an awful lot more. So luckily, you know, the city's improved in that sense. I see. So how has all this parking and this perceived need for more parking impacted the infrastructure of cities, including Chicago, Jane? So, um, you know, as Daniel was mentioning before, we, you know, we have a lot of parking in our downtowns um, and and beyond, and that's mostly because of the policies that we institute. So in, a, in, in our zoning codes, every city has a zoning code, and more often than not, we have historically required that each individual land use has to build its own separate parking. Mm -hmm. So when McDonald's has its own separate parking surrounding it, and then Olive Garden has its own separate parking surrounding it, it expands how much space is between different uses. And when you have these spaces that are, you know, now what was, you know, you can park one time and go to multiple locations. Now you have to walk 100, 200 feet just to get to these places and there. And then you start saying to yourself, well, I'm, of course, I'm going to drive. I'm not going to walk. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's before you know it, that's, that's an entire city or an entire downtown is it, it, you know, all these land uses are, you know, located and all these buildings are located on a sea of parking. And then you just have to drive everywhere. And it kind of is a little bit of a self-fulfilling process. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. But yeah, when you break it down like that, um, Henry, how does public transportation fit into this conversation, right? Because if, if there are fewer parking spots and fewer cars, people need a way to get around the city, to, to work, to eat, to live. One of the number one determinants of whether people use public transportation is how much parking is available um, at the place they're going and whether that parking is free or not. So to the extent that we are interested in creating cities with less traffic, where more people opt to use public transportation, um, we need to come to terms with the fact that parking is basically um, an anti-public uh, transit, sort of poison for, for public transit use. And and that's that's both because, obviously, um, free parking that's required by law is a, is a massive subsidy towards car ownership, uh, especially when you have to pay you know, $3 each way, maybe to ride a bus or, uh, take, take the L. Um, but the other thing is, is that it obviously just takes up a lot of room. And so as Jane was saying, the, the more parking that gets included in the urban environment, the less pleasant it becomes to walk around. And mm-hmm. public transit really only works if people are uh, willing to walk from, uh, where they are to, to, to the transit stop. And then also if that walk is enjoyable, I think people's, um, standards for, uh, how far they're willing to walk in the city, in a city like Chicago, tend to be relatively high because the urban environment is sort of interesting and diverse and it's fun and you, you pass by different shops and bars and you see people walking and it's it's very pleasant. But if you go to an environment that is 
you know, 75% parking by area, um, you try walking a couple blocks there and, and it doesn't feel so nice. You know, more car makers and, and drivers, they're moving to electric vehicles, Daniel. And uh, when you fold in another factor to parking, you're going to talk about charging ports, right? Uh, so what impact do you think that EVs are going to have on parking in the future? I mean, this, I think, is what, one of the really interesting questions. You know, a few weeks ago, I was driving uh, a Tesla, which I'd, I'd rented oh, for a weekend away. How was that? And, uh, it's a fun car. You can't deny it. Um but I, I parked it at a place that had a free charger. And I began to think, you know, once everybody's got to get electric cars, that's obviously not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the worries I have about electric cars right now is that we, we've gotten to a position where there are quite a lot of free chargers around and they're in parking spots. And sometimes you can park for free at a place with a charger where normal people, you know, electric, non-electric cars can't park. Yeah. So people who are buying electric cars and get used to this enormous kind of privilege of having free parking and free charging or inexpensive charging. Sounds like a great world over there. It's going to be possible once everybody's got an electric car. And, and I, I worry that we sort of, if we, you know, we, we're just going to add to the cost of saying, okay, you're going to have to provide a free um, car parking space with every building, but you're also going to have to put a charging point to it mm. as well. And so I think, you know, now ought to be the time where we work out, okay, how do we charge for the space? How do we kind of charge drivers a fair price for what they're using again, rather than uh, doubling down on, on free? Yeah. Do you have thoughts, Jane? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that something that EVs really market themselves as, which is true, is that they're a more sustainable mode to get around. But, you know, we really have to focus on that the fact that the most sustainable way to move people is mass transit and active transportation. And making sure that we prioritize that when we plan our cities and we plan our communities is really critical. And there are a lot of opportunities that EVs bring to the table, um, especially in terms of having, um, you know, larger freight vehicles and, and fleets like Amazon trucks mm-hmm. be electric would save so much on and, and really improve emissions. Um, and in terms of, you know, private parking, it's just, or, you know, for personal vehicle ownership, yeah. it is important to think about, you know, could there be a bus lane here? Could there be a bike lane here? Making sure that, you know, where we put EVs, uh, is is going to be sustainable um, long term and and not mandate them or require them in addition to parking. Spaces. And I'm thinking of parking lots, right? Parking lots, they're all what cement or asphalt. I mean, mm-hmm. is there a, a way to build a more green parking option, Henry? <laughs> um, not really. No. I mean, you can park on a on a grassy field like you you would at a, a football tailgate, but you know that, that's only going to work if it, if it's the kind of uh, parking lot that's only used a few times a year. Obviously, you can make impervious surface, right, where um, the rain, for example, will soak down into the ground and replenish groundwater reserves and not go right into the uh, combined sewer system and, and, and overload the, the, the city's infrastructural capacity during rainstorms. And, mm-hmm. and that's really important. But I think when it comes to thinking about electric cars, I just want to say one word about this. 30% of Americans do not have a private home garage. They either rely on... Uh, shared parking lots or garages in multifamily buildings, or they park on the street, <laughs> as uh, as many people do in, in big cities like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and so on. Yeah. Now, for those people who have um, garages in multifamily buildings, adapting to electric vehicles um, is going to be challenging because it requires um, 
quite a bit of uh, infrastructural adaptation at the building level, not just digging up the concrete in the garage, but also sometimes upgrading the whole building's connection to the electrical grid to account for the amount of power that you'll need to charge all those cars. Now, installing a charger for every car in the garage is going to be really expensive. So then the question becomes, can you share those chargers mm-hmm. between those different cars? And I think that would be the best option. But, of course, it depends on collaboration between neighbors. Sure. And at the city level, this becomes an even more intractable problem because uh, people may be neighbors, but they don't have that necessarily shared bond that they do if they uh, live in the same building, right? And so then the question is, how are you ever going to install enough electric vehicle chargers on, for example, the streets of Chicago um, so <laughs> yeah. that you don't have a thousand extension cords coming out the window to charge people's cars. Um, I've talked to makers of electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and they've said it is not profitable for us to go in and dig up the curb and install an EV charger to wait for somebody to pull up. It and, sounds you know, pretty impossible. Yeah, It doesn't pencil out. And so I'm not really sure what the plan is so that Americans who live in cities who drive cars don't get left out of this transition. There is no plan. <laughs> <laughs> you work as a parking consultant, Jane. You got to tell me more about that. Like who who needs your services typically? Uh well, I mean, the parking problem across America is very vast, so really everyone, I guess. But <laughs> so we're all your clients. <laughs> no, but uh yes, I'm a I'm a senior mobility manager at a firm called HN2B here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, I focus on parking uh, management and curbside management. So a city will come and come to us and say, you know, uh, we, for example, exactly this, I'm doing a lot of work around EVs. So, you know, what, how, how do we frame this issue? What are the policies we need to do to put in place to make this work, to make cities more livable, to make um, cities more walkable? You know, there's also a lot of times where, They'll say, okay, we, we have all these businesses that are upset because no one can access their business and customers are yelling at them. And we kind of come in and say, okay, where is parking available? How can we price it correctly to, you know, shift maybe employees off of on-street spaces and make those available mm-hmm. for customers? So really going into cities um, and making sure all, you know, the public understands parking and that, you know, policies are put into place and the right combination of policies are put into place to um, really optimize the parking footprint. Yeah. So, you know, there's too much parking and it's hard to find, but do apps like Spot Hero make a difference? They actually do. I I, love Spot Hero. I use Spot Hero. I I don't own a car, but I often have to rent them for work. And Spot Hero is really useful. Like your Tesla the other day. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, things like that are useful because they they charge a price for parking. And as I said earlier, if you're willing to to pay, you can Mm -hmm. generally find parking. And the solution to most of our parking problems is to to charge for parking, just like we charge for lots of things. Um, We need to get over this kind of assumption that it will always be free or managed or controlled in some other way. Embrace the free market, basically. Yeah, embrace it. (laughs) So, Henry, you write, of course, most parking in the U.S. is free, as we've been talking about, though, as we've mentioned, it's definitely not the case here in Chicago, or it doesn't seem like it. We've got a parking meter deal with a private company here. So can you just remind us of the details and how that limits how creative city officials can get when it comes to parking solutions? For those of you who, uh, listeners who maybe moved to Chicago recently, um, a little bit of Chicago history is that in 2008, the city of Chicago leased all 36,000 of its parking meters to a group of Wall Street investors led by Morgan Stanley for a period of 75 years. Now, um, at the time, this produced a 
a big upfront payment of $1.15 billion to the city right on the eve of the Great Recession. It seemed like a great deal in exchange for a bunch of quarters that people were dropping into parking meters. But it soon became apparent that the city had uh, really been ripped off in this deal. And that, in fact, the value of 75 years of Chicago parking meter revenue was at least $2 billion and, and perhaps quite a few billion more. Mm-hmm. And I think you've begun to see the effects of that deal take shape as um, the uh, investor group has uh, raised the rates as the Chicago uh, Board of Aldermen knew that they would. And uh, furthermore, uh, in what seemed to be a surprise to politicians in Chicago, they have found themselves uh, unable to make changes uh, to the streetscape in the places where these parking meters are Mm -hmm. um, because the investors say every time a parking meter gets moved or it gets turned off or its hours are limited in some way, um, they're entitled to a payment from the city of Chicago. So um, just a few years after this deal was signed, Chicago was actually paying money every year to this private company uh, for all the times that they took parking meters out of commission, whether that was to build a bike lane or hold a festival mm-hmm. uh, or what have you. And and so going forward, especially as we think about um, you know seating for restaurants, chargers for electric vehicles, bike lanes, bus lanes, all this stuff, a major obstacle to that is the fact that Chicago does not really control it's curbside for the next 60 years. Wow. Anything you want to add, Daniel? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I, I, Henry's book writes about the parking meter deal brilliantly and, uh, and it is a terrible deal in terms of the money. But I also think it's kind of an excuse not to do some of these things because it is still, it's 36,000 street parking spaces that are metered. And something, God, I'm not exactly sure how, but that covers like 4% of the number of parking spaces that there are. So the city could actually look at this and go, hang on a minute, if we put meters on more streets, we could make loads of money like this company does. They have a big opportunity to meter loads more. I live in um, in Wicker Park in Bucktown, um, kind of on the border, and mm-hmm. I was reading there was a, I, can't, I think it was a, the Center of um, Metropolitan Planning kind of organization's documents. And of those 1,000 meter parking spaces, there's something like 11,000 unmetered ones. And there's a very popular area where people are really struggling to park and probably would pay. So I think, you know, the way to look at the parking meter deal is not what we can't do. It's what, what the city could do. If they charged for more parking, they wouldn't have to be giving it all to these Wall Street investors. Mm. They could make a lot of money that, you know, for this city would matter a lot. That would allow them to kind of cover, you know, some of the parking spaces that maybe they want to take away, you know, for bike lanes and things. And uh, so I kind of feel like the parking meter deal, as terrible as it was, has become this big excuse for not doing stuff in mm. Chicago. Interesting. Any thoughts there, Jane? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Daniel. But it's also, uh, you know, when you talk to locals, there's a big perception and a big mental barrier. You know, once you hand over a, a parking uh, area, you know, an on-street parking area to uh, CPM, Chicago Parking Meters, you know, it, it then is kind of in their control. And um, as a as a recent, you know, local example, they did, um, in fact, add a bike lane between I think it's Western and California recently, and the aldermen did have to take out, it was like something like 100 parking meter parking spaces, mm-hmm. and it took a very long time, and it, you know, he had to find a one-for-one spot that you could then charge for parking in residential areas, which, you know, was a successful project. It's a bike lane now. It's great. I'm on it every day. But um, it makes it more cumbersome and complex to do these types of street projects. Mm-hmm. And these are already things that aldermen get pushback from if there wasn't 
parking meters um, on the street and if they didn't have to go through a, pr- a private concessionaire. Yeah. But it just adds to that level of, of um, complexity and makes it a little more you know, complicated from a constituent standpoint and from a governance standpoint. And, and to that end, Henry, you've also talked extensively about uh, solutions to this overabundance of, of parking. One I don't initially love, you know, you suggest reducing the number of spots and, and charging more for available spots. You also talked about uh, street parking, saying that it should cost more than garage parking. Tell us a bit more about that. Like, what, what would that change about people's attitudes toward parking? Well, I think one of the fundamental um, dynamics in most American cities, Chicago is perhaps not among them, is that street parking is free or nearly free, costs maybe a buck fifty an hour or something like that, while garage parking can cost ten, twelve, fifteen dollars an hour and sometimes more. And um that's backwards, right? Because garage parking is nobody's first choice. Everyone would prefer to park on the street. Ideally, we should want any driver coming into town to immediately park themselves in a garage rather than circling the block over and over again. Uh, looking for cheap but valuable uh, street parking. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that that does seem to be backwards in a lot of places. And I think one thing that the city of San Francisco has done is they have uh, municipally owned garages. And what they've done is they've lowered the price in those garages and raised it on the street in an effort to get drivers to immediately, you know, budget conscious drivers who don't want to pay a lot for parking, say, you know what? Your first move should be heading straight for the garage and then walking around the city from there rather than circling the block over and over again looking for cheap parking. And I think that's a pretty good strategy. I keep thinking about how different cities uh, would look if they weren't so centered around cars and centered around parking, right? I mean, but here we are. What do you folks think? You know, one way. Go ahead, go ahead, Henry. One way that Chicago residents... One of the funny things about this, the situation they find themselves in is, um, a lot of cities are, are kind of torn when it comes to putting in infrastructure for pedestrians and cyclists because parking is such a moneymaker for them, right? I mean, if they have municipally owned garages or meters, uh, and not to mention anything from parking violations, that's a huge source of municipal revenue. Yeah. Uh, for Chicago, obviously, when it comes to parking meters, that's not the problem anymore. Chicago doesn't make any money from their parking meters. Um, and so a way to really stick it to CPM uh, would be to just uh, ride a bike, walk places, use CTA, and stop paying those meters. What do you think a shift towards a, a less car-centric city would look like, Daniel? I think it's happening. If you would look at like what's happening in places like uh, Paris or, or London a little bit or um, New York, you know, you just gradually... Um, as people begin to, if you shift incentives a little bit, and one of the ways you can do it is by making people pay a little bit for parking, yeah. they will find that they, that it is, as, as Henry says, kind of easier to walk, that actually maybe they can walk, they could use public transport after all, that that becomes the kind of, uh, you know, a different a choice rather than the sort of default of getting in your car. And then we can have more housing in our city centers. We'll have more kind of vibrancy, more more life, more, more population density. We'll all be a bit greener. Um, and, uh, you know, and parking really is one of the ways in which we can kind of encourage that to happen just by making it a little trickier, a little pricier, maybe not even harder, maybe just a little pricier to park. And I would just add that, you know, we're starting to do that in Chicago right now, actually. The, there was recently a Connected Communities Ordinance passed, um, which actually uh, prevents 
minimum parking requirements a half mile from CTA stations. So essentially making it so that developers don't have to re- don't have to build parking. Mm-hmm. So those areas around CTA and around transit are, you know, enabled to now be more walkable, more dense, and, you know, more like what we would see in Europe. You know, you don't have to build all these. Because folks might ask, what, what, well, what do we do now with all the empty parking spaces? Yeah, you build, you build, you build, you know, services, you build places that you don't, you know, that, that un- enable you to walk to all, all your errands. You know, there's this idea of like the 15 minute or 20 minute city where you can, you know, live, you know, in your community and mm-hmm. walk to a grocery store or, you know, postal service or, you know, what have you within 15 or 20 minutes and, you know, b- increasing the density, increasing the, the number and types of land uses that you can get to without having a car um, allows that, that to happen. Should we touch on the environmental impact that that parking can have? I I know that when drivers are circling around looking for parking spots, if they're not driving an electric vehicle, they're burning gas, right? So, I mean, how much would you think that that contributes to climate change? I I think Henry would have better figures. Henry? It's definitely a surprising amount. (laughs) (laughs) The latest study that I've seen, which is a federal study, shows that um, drivers in congested areas can add about 10 to 15% onto their trip by just looking for a parking spot. Now, there have been various studies that have shown that number to be considerably higher um, that suggest that, you know, uh, a third of drivers, as many as a third of drivers in in some congested locations are really just looking for parking. Um, So all of that is, of course, a a, a sizable contributor, not just to traffic congestion, local air pollution, um, climate change in the form of greenhouse gas emissions, um, but it also... uh, it's just a it's a big negative externality for the city and i think and not to mention for the drivers themselves i mean a lot of this time is wasted and i think one of the reasons that people tend to get so frustrated about parking is that it does become this kind of x factor at the end of your trip right like google maps will tell you exactly how many minutes it's going to take you to get somewhere um but they can't yet tell you how long it's going to take to park and, yeah. and that's sort of a uh, mystery factor, I and wish. I think that speaks to the extent, yeah, speaks to the extent to which parking is kind yeah. of uncharted terrain, even still. Well, we're almost out of time, but if you could each just take 20 seconds to tell me the one thing that you hope folks leave this conversation with, especially here in Chicago, when it comes to parking. You first, Jane. Oh, that's hard. Um, I think the one thing uh, is that, you know, reducing parking makes places more walkable, and that's something that we all want. Daniel? Having to pay for parking is good, even if it may not feel like it. I object. (laughs) (laughs) Henry? I think even drivers have something to gain from better parking policy, whether it's paid parking or more walkable neighborhoods. uh, De-emphasizing the role of parking is ultimately going to make it a better city for everyone. Henry Grabar is a staff writer at Slate and author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Jane Wilberding is a co-founder of the Parking Reform Network, and Daniel Knowles is a Midwest correspondent for The Economist and author of the book Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Thank you all so much for joining us.